Hello and welcome back to the Blast from Our Past podcast. I'm Adam. I'm John. And today we've got an episode all about flight and soaring. We're going to fly with the Navigator from 1986, and we're going to let our minds soar with the Reading Rainbow. I see what you did there. We will also be giving our take on a casting of a live-action Teen Titans. We are a podcast all about nostalgic TV and movies. If you haven't listened to us before, we go back and rewatch old movies and shows and review them in the fresh eyes of older people and see if they hold up or not, as well as recast shows that we might want to see redone with new actors. So let's get things started off with Flight of the Navigator. What do you say? I'm all for it. Okay. Uh, Flight of the Navigator from 1986. It stars a kid named Joey Kramer, Paul Rubens, and Sarah Jessica Parker, as well as people I've never seen again, and I don't think I have been in any other movies. So the movie opens with a flying disc. I don't know if you saw this and caught this. They use this trick as, is it about UFOs? It's Flight of the Navigator. It must be about some kind of spaceships, and we'd start off with this spaceshipy looking thing, and then it's just a dog catching a frisbee. Yes, they use a, a kind of silver reflective frisbee. And you know what? As a kid, I did fall for it. Oh, yeah. I remember the very first time seeing it and thinking, oh, man, what is what is going on with this movie? As a kid? John, I'm 31, and I fell for it <laughs> the, first, the first shot <laughs> rewatching it. It has been years since I've seen this movie. Like I can't even count it. I didn't fall for it just because I, re- I, I specifically remembered that scene. Uh, that scene really stuck in my head, the fact that they had done this little trick. Yeah. So re-watching it, I knew exactly what was coming up. But they did a really pretty good job of kind of messing with the time flow of the video to make it seem like it's much smoother than it actually is. Yeah, it, I mean, I definitely thought so. It, it's because it's been so long since I've seen it, uh, even though I own the movie, I have not watched it in God knows how long. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's a weird looking saucer. That's not this ship that I remember. And it wasn't. <laughs> but they do this a couple times where they try and trick you. Yes. Because I think they're using the audience that is anticipating, oh, this is a sci-fi movie to an extent. Yes. So then we have about, it seems like 20 minutes of dogs catching frisbees. It feels like it. It definitely feels yeah, like it. Way too long of a montage. And it has the definite 80s feel with the music already. The music is actually done by Alan Silvestri, Mm. who is a great composer. He did Forrest Gump. He did Back to the Future. He did Avengers. He he did so many movies, including Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) A great (laughs) movie. So a great composer behind it. Uh, As I'll kind of mention again later, I did not really care for his score in this film. But anyway, we're kind of going into it. It's set in 1978. We start off in 1978. Which is very apparent by the clothing. Yeah, it's very 70s-ish. But nothing really happens at the beginning. You're at a dog park catching frisbees, and there's the family, and then they all kind of get together. Really, all we see is David and his brother don't get along. Yeah. His brother, Jeff. Right before that, though, is when we have that second moment where we think something is happening. So first is the Frisbees, and then we have this big shadow. The second moment is a big shadow comes across everybody at the park. They all look up. Is it a UFO? No, it's a blimp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a blimp going across the sun. Uh-huh. So that's that's the, the second tease, and then we'll get a third one later. One thing that definitely made me realize, oh, besides the music and the look and everything that, oh, this is an 80s movie, was the dog that David has called Bruiser is a fairly dumb dog. It can't catch a frisbee. And the 
younger brother Jeff is kind of making fun of it, calling it dumb. And and David says, don't call him dumb. And Jeff goes back, well, how about retarded? And I was like, yes. oh, that's I dated. That line. I yeah. caught that line. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's um, that probably wouldn't be written in today's society. No. But yeah, so we see David and his and Jeff not getting along. We get just some kind of back and forth of them in the car. We kind of get set up that David has a crush on this girl named Jennifer Bradley. Nothing, nothing really important is happening as of yet. We're just kind of dropping off Jeff. We're kind of getting back home. Uh, one thing that I did find was interesting was when the family gets out of the car at the end, when they just get home, the mother, father, and David, there's a very short section of music played from the movie. Greece mm-hmm. and the director of this film Randall Kleiser also directed Greece I think that was just a little nod to him I want to mention so the parents I cannot remember who the father is I know he's been in a few things but the mother is a great actress named Veronica Cartwright who in my mind will Cartwright? always be Cartwright <laughs> will always be famous Seinfeld come on no <laughs> I didn't watch Seinfeld. It's from the Chinese episode. I didn't watch Seinfeld one. like you did. Oh. I just didn't get into it. I'm, I guess I'm one of the, the few who just didn't. Okay. But All right. <laughs> let's just move. Let's brush past that and move back to the Flight of the Navigator. All right, fine. Veronica Cartwright, in my mind, will always be etched as the woman with the weirdest sort of screaming. I don't know if it's a scream or a moan or what it was, but she's the one who reacts first in the movie Alien when the chestburster pops uh... out of... John Hurt's chest. I forgot that that was her. She pops out and then she gets sprayed with blood and you hear her go, oh, oh. (laughs) Just this weirdest sounding scream uh, before the alien pops out of his chest and runs away. In my mind, that's all I see is this woman because I unfortunately just associate her with that role. Okay. So I guess the family's back home now. It's a little bit later. David has to go pick up his brother from his friend's place that he was dropped off at. And so now he's Walking in the woods, we get the next, the third foreshadowing, the third tease while he's walking to go find his brother, which is, is it a UFO? While he sees walking in the woods? No, it's a water tower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. That has been played out now. I get it. We get some it. UFO is coming, but we get kind of some scary music here as he's going to pick up his brother. It's like, you know, it's felt kind of uneasy, like almost like, is this actually a horror movie? Not yeah. really sure. Some um, sort of sort of nature sounds, some stick cracking, yes, rustling, exactly. that sort of thing. Classic in the woods, scary moments happening. So now we're thinking, oh my god, he's going to get abducted. We've had these teas of UFO stuff. It's going to happen right here, right now. And down pops Jeff. Jump scare happens. The little four-eyed freak is uh, <laughs> scares the shit out of David. <laughs> The little kid did a good job. I like the younger brother who ever played that. I think this was his only movie. Probably. There's a lot of that in this movie, I think. Yeah. Jeff runs on off. He scares David and runs back home, basically, which that's that. Uh, the bruiser, the dog, was with him, and he finds something down in, like, this pit. And David's curious, and he tries to lean down to look at it and stupidly falls into the pit. Like, he holds onto a vine. And you wonder if there was ever anything down there, because when he lands, it they only show it for a short time, but there didn't appear to be anything down there. Yeah. Which means maybe Bruiser was a dumb dog, because he was barking <laughs> at this hole, and there apparently was nothing down there. Yeah. Well, right after, yeah, he falls into the pit, and there was this very bad edit i understand that it was probably meant to be bad because all of like the ambient sounds and all this stuff cut off really hard and it gets in a weird edit to where it's now later we don't know how long later 
It's just something. It doesn't seem seamless, and maybe it wasn't supposed to be seamless. It's supposed to denote, I guess, the passage of time. There was no any kind of like actual transition. There was really no transition music. There was no cross-dissolve. There was no anything that denoted passage of time, And but it was still awkward. And I think that was the point of it. After you watch the entire movie, you realize, oh, that was the point of that. But at the time, you're like, that's just a bad cut. What the fuck? Right. That's what I saw. <laughs> Also, he fell, like, a good 10, 15 feet. He didn't break any bones. He didn't do anything. He was just fine. That was weird to me. When we find out later where he's been, it is entirely possible that he could have been healed in that time. Yeah, uh, yeah, true. But, you know, all of this is trying to make me think of some conspiracy theories. Like, oh my god, is he dead and now in purgatory? Oh my god, is he have a concussion and he's now in a coma? What's going on? Like, that's all that kind of stuff made me think of this kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I think you're thinking a little too hard about it. <laughs> Probably. Just, I'll take the movie for what it is. Yeah. So, David wakes up after that strange edit. He goes home with quotations around home, and these old people live there now. His family's not there anymore. But what the heck? It's just been, it's the same night. All he did was fall in the pit and then got up and left. What's going on, John? I don't know, Adam. I just don't know. The early moments of this film reminds me a lot of a Twilight Zone episode. There's a lot of like those horror little elements in here, like where it starts off, oh, very nice and 80s. And then right here, it's just, it feels super Twilight Zone. Yeah. And I kind of liked that about it early on. Like, I thought it was, I was like, okay, that's not bad. It's uh, just kind of a little bit of mindfuck stuff happening with all of the the teasing of the ufo the fake ufos mm -hmm. and then now it's definitely twilight zoney where he fell into a pit he gets out and now his parents aren't out at his home what the hell's going on basically we find out that a jump in time he starts talking to the cops the the old people take him to the police we kind of just hear from kind of background discussion that this kid was called in missing and he was presumed dead and this was eight years ago and so we're all like as an audience what the hell is happening this kid just fell into a pit and now it's eight years later that doesn't make any sense i don't know if this was an, an acting choice or if this was supposed to be the way the character was but this kid i don't know if he's anti-authoritarian but he questions everything he is whiny his yes. voice is whiny he can't stand like just the tone like the pitch of his voice it's like you need to hit puberty <laughs> because this is killing me it's gotta stop you know every time you know the t the cops are talking and they said presumed dead and he goes who's dead <laughs> in every every little thing he's just he just questions everything and i understand not you know kind of freaking out but at some point you got to start listening to what's going on yeah they're trying you know these people are trying to explain things to you and you're just you, you're not having it. Even anything logical, you're not having. And that was a little annoying. Definitely. He was annoying. He was an annoying main character. Uh, one thing I want to add in is, as I said before, I remember so little about this movie, I completely forgot that time skipped ahead. Like, I, I, I forgot the entire plot of this movie, basically. <laughs> and so when I found that out, I was just like, oh, fucking really? Like, like th that happens? Because all I remember is I loved Max as a kid, like the the who we meet later, the alien, and then the cute little bush baby looking thing. <laughs> and that's yeah. all that's all I remember. Yeah. And so I kinda came in with some really fresh eyes on this. Probably didn't help my enjoyment of the movie, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I watched it again uh, last night, but I had just watched it a couple of months ago because my wife and I went on kind of a nostalgic bender and started making our kids watch these old movies. We say old movies. They're really not that old. We're not talking like yeah. Casablanca here. No. You know, we're talking the <laughs> 80s and, and, and early 90s stuff. Uh, we tried to show this to 
this one to my kids. And uh, while my wife and I were enjoying it, I don't really think my kids enjoyed it all that much. But I was not so fresh because I had watched it fairly recently before watching it again. So I watched it in the same eyes that you watch a movie that you've most recently watched. Where You're watching it, but you're not paying attention to as much of the little details because you know you've seen it already. But enough to kind of get things. Yeah. So I forgot everything. Uh, and I'm like, okay, all right. We are ahead in time. This is weird. Everything is like... You know, not as it was. Which I'm going to call bullshit on because they make the parents look so much older. Oh, it looks way more than eight years. It looks way more than eight years. (laughs) You might be able to make the, the argument that the stress of having lost David, you could make that argument. But I know they wanted to show the passage of time in these adults, but it seemed like way more than eight years. It seemed like 15 to 20 years had passed on them. They just needed to add some like grays on them, honestly, and change their hairstyles. But right. now they like, they put a lot of extra makeup on them and it was, yeah. it looked, it looked way older. Yeah. And it, and it was way obvious makeup. <laughs> yes, it was. So we're, we've met the older parents and then we have a cut to an actual UFO thing. There wasn't really much of a big tease we got those three teases earlier and then now it's just like oh okay now we're at an actual ufo that's floating and it looks like a big silver nut basically <laughs> looks like a big almond or something yeah yeah and it's apparently crashed into some power lines and so it's just kind of floating there and government's trying to figure out what to do with it then we cut back to david he's at the hospital things are very confusing uh and then we meet his younger big brother jeff who was the kid who scared the hell out of him and they did not get along this is kind of really the moment where david is believing that he's actually eight years later because they bond over calling each other their names again like butthead and yeah very very 80s insults but yeah and it, butthead it, and it's the first real physical i mean yes his parents look older but it's the re- it's the first real physical change that he can see mm-hmm. this is jeff jeff has grown up jeff is now 16 so that's that's the most obvious change and i think that was the anchor he needed to start accepting mm-hmm. that this had happened so yeah so they kind of bond over that uh, then we cut back to the ufo just to kind of as a here's this thing again and trying to make the audience think wait is this all connected somehow and then david starts hearing voices we can't make out what the voice is saying Uh, it's kind of just like gargly yeah it doesn't appear to be in english or anything yep and it's pitched really low but basically shit's going down david's fucked up it's still very twilight zone you're hearing voices maybe it's a demon in his head who knows kind of cut back to the government at the with the ufo in their labs and they can't get into it it's seamless it's just this big silver thing that they can't open up and they have no idea how to do it then the hospital starts doing tests on david uh as it would these parents are terrible parents where they just they just <laughs> hand him over they, yeah. they lose him for eight years and then they're just like oh yeah you just do all the tests oh yeah 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 just scan to do all the brain scans and probably electroshocks and that kind of shit like it's awful <laughs> on one hand i agree but i'm gonna play devil's advocate on this uh-huh As a parent, if my child went missing for eight years and came back looking exactly the same Mm -hmm. and no memory of the passage of time, I would probably want answers too. Yes. Now, I would probably be not as nice and kind of demand... They were very accommodating to the government. (laughs) After this later, when he goes to NASA, they let him go by himself. Yeah, that's stupid. I would not have let that happen. Hell no. One of us, either my wife or I, would have stayed with him. Yeah. I would not have allowed that to happen. But then you don't obviously get in any of the hijinks that happen later when he's by himself. Yeah. 
So anyway, he's getting tested. They say all this science-y talk of, wow, he's emitting high-frequency alpha waves, and he's speaking in binary with the computers. Like, just jargon that most of it doesn't even make any sense. And then they get a printout from his brain that was talking to the computers of the almond-shaped ship, the UFO. And so now NASA is like, all right, there is something here uh, that's going on. But here's what I want to know. The printout came from the hospital. Then it was sent to NASA. How in the hell did the hospital know to send that to NASA? And not only to NASA, to that specific place, because they're in Florida. They're at Cape Canaveral. How did they know where to send it? Because The thing, it looks like an almond or a seed. How the fuck did they know that it was a UFO? (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) It just, yeah, you can't tell from that picture. Yes, I know. And because it just it just looks like a shape. Yeah, because movie. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that where this things don't make sense why it happens. It just happens. Right. Well, and you, as you know, as an adult, we question all this stuff. As a kid, you just take it at face value. So they get this printout from the mind of a twelve year old boy. How they put it, which to me, like I want to try and make this movie, I think, more interesting. So I'm like, okay, from the mind of a 12-year-old, maybe this whole world is from the mind of a 12-year-old boy. Maybe it is in that coma. Maybe he did fall and he's dead and and we're just in his purgatory world. I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to make it work better as a <laughs> as an adult and it's not happening. It's not happening. Uh, so NASA convinces David and the family to let him go with them to their center and we then meet Sarah Jessica Parker who is a cute teen that David connects with. It is, I guess, cleaning, who is coming in and feeding him or something. She's an intern. They have a terrible intern program where you (laughs) would let a random intern start interacting with a science subject. Yeah. NASA is a terrible organization. Like, they are dumb (laughs) as fuck. Yeah, they don't, they don't portray NASA in a very good light in this. No. And I, uh, I don't know. I wonder, I kind of wonder how NASA always felt about yeah. that. Because they, <laughs> they seem like there's this big, huge government entity, and they are. But I've never heard of, of NASA having like this sort of militaristic style of them having all of the security. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yes, they obviously have to have security. But Dr. Faraday kind of wields all of this power like they can't do this or they should do this and i'm pretty sure that doesn't really happen that would only happen if it was a military operation Mm -hmm. not a nasa operation so it was a little unrealistic of this and and especially in the age where we live where everything is being questioned i'm a huge nasa proponent and anything involving that stuff and i I kind of almost took it personally that they made NASA the bad guys. Now, in 19... uh, It was very confusing. Yeah, and in 1980... What was this, 1986? Yeah, uh, yeah, 86. Maybe no one really thought that much about it because they would make anyone the enemy and you just kind of did it. But uh, I don't know. As an adult, I kind of took it personally of, I don't really think NASA would act this way. This sounds like a military thing, not a NASA thing. It was very confusing as an audience because, yeah, we're supposed to have... NASA and this government group as our main antagonist and NASA is something that the entire country bonded over with the space race and you know getting to the moon and it's something that it's always like for dreams and for hoping and dreaming and like going to the stars like it's something that I don't think badly about NASA I think you know you can think badly about military governments or military government organizations but like having it be NASA I thought was really strange because I didn't want to hate them but they were dicks (laughs) but then it also showed them times where they were like cheering that the boy is safe so they're not bad people right but it was like okay 
who am I supposed to hate? Right. Like, I, I'm not really sure. But at the same time, you have a the situation where a kid comes back eight years later and he looks exactly the same. Of course, you not want to try and figure it out. But like, so I want them to figure it out, but they're being dicks. And so yeah. it's, it's, it, I, I didn't have a, a clear hero and villain to root against. And it just, they didn't do a very good job with NASA in general. No. Uh, so we meet Sarah Jessica Parker and this weird robot named Ralph that goes around with her. Really nothing, nothing important happening there other than you just meet them. Right. So NASA does more tests. David's brain speaks with computers, but it's not really something that David can control. It's its own entity, if you will. So the question really becomes, is it really David mm. talking to the computer? I didn't get the feeling that it was. Yeah. Like, he just never, never seemed in control of it. It was always just its own thing, even though it was coming from his brain, it wasn't really him right later we find out that they kind of use him as a storage device mm -hmm. basically david becomes a, a usb card it's essentially what he becomes a perfect way to put it yeah that's they use the argument that humans only use 10 percent of the brain which isn't true complete bullshit complete bullshit but in this scene it seems like david's more of a transmitter than a usb drive so he's a USB that has Wi-Fi and can transmit <laughs> well, on its own. Well, he's plugged in. They got a... Yeah, that's right. Yes, he is plugged in. <laughs> he's got crap all over his head. So David has an alien in him. He's kind of scared. Something like that is going on. There's a scene of him bonding again with Sarah Jessica Parker. And, you know, he kind of asks her help to get out. He wants to get out of NASA because he's scared and he needs to go home. And her being just a damn intern, of course, <laughs> says yes. <laughs> she would be so fired. Like, they have terrible security at NASA, like atrocious security at NASA. Well, you know, you can't find reliable guards these days, or apparently in 1986 either. So we get a, another scene of him hearing some more voices. They're, yeah, they're awkward. They're muddled. We don't know what's going on. Uh, so he sneaks out. But David's actually responding to them this time, I think. This is when he's actually kind of communicating with them as opposed to just saying he's hearing voices so he's understanding and he knows he needs to go somewhere and so it's almost like mind controlling him to come to the ship yeah and so he sneaks out inside of ralph the robot that we only use for this moment basically who is a worthless plot device and it's the worst acronym like they forced it yeah yes because ralph was like i think it was robotic assistance labor facilitator yeah which <laughs> it's a robot slave that's what it is it's a, yeah yes. it's a robot slave it's just doing the housework it's delivering food that's all it is and the only reason it has a big enough stuff is because they just use it to deliver food which seems like a very expensive cart that someone could just be pushing absolutely so he's in ralph sneaking out and we get these this very cheesy 80s music as it's driving around the nasa base basically And it's just a little montage of him driving all around. I know it has different music in it, but every time I see that scene, it makes me think of the song, I Need a Hero. That was used in the movie, I think, Short... I actually think it was in Short Circuit 2. Oh. Kind of the chase scene in Short Circuit 2. Yes. Because that's that's what I see, is I, I just kind of see this... It looks like almost like a chase scene, because it it's constantly has something behind it that you think maybe is chasing after it, then it turns out it's not. But in my head, that's the song that's playing. Okay. See, when I hear I Need a Hero, I immediately go to Footloose. And 
the the tractor chicken race. Like that's that's where I'm at. Oh, okay. That's the, you said I need to hear on this. My brain immediately went to Footloose and Kevin Bacon. But I I wouldn't be surprised if Short Circuit Two used it as well. So David gets to the ship. The ship is not very well secure. David just basically is able to sneak in very easily. So now we're there, and the UFO that didn't open up for anyone else with some very poor graphics that don't hold up, in my opinion, of it kind of melting and forming the stairs, uh, it opens up for David. I'm, I'm trying to think of a comparable movie of the time that had better graphics. I mean, for the time, it's okay. It didn't really hold up that well. Like, when the ship is just floating on its own, it looks fine. Right. It's not terrible. But, like, when it's doing that little morphing thing, not so much. It seems a little weird that they may not have put more money into the graphics because this is, in its essence, it's a Disney movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is when Disney was had gone back to live action. It was before the renaissance of Disney animated movies that started coming out when they started having, um, you know, Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. and Little Mermaid really kind of kicked it off in the late 80s, and then it blew up in the 90s. It was before all of that happened, and they were trying to kickstart um, some careers. They thought that they could do with Joey Kramer, who I have to read you. He, his full name is fascinating. His full name is, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, Delarius August Joe Fisher Kramer is his whole name. He's actually a Canadian actor. They were billing him as their next big star. They were trying to, and they even compared him to other child actors who had gone on to be big stars, like Ron Howard, mm, oh, wow. started in Disney movies. Kurt Russell, when he was a kid, was in Disney movies. But actors like that, who had gone on to big, big stars, and they considered him to be their next big sort of Disney star, like he was going to grow up to be this great actor. Oddly enough, he stopped acting in 1996, so only 10 years later, and then basically fell off the grid. Yeah. The only other time he popped up was in the 2000s. He started popping up with, uh, he had problems with, you know, drugs and arrests and stuff like that. So he fell into the the much more conventional child actor fault. Yeah, kind of. It's It seems like, uh, kind of unfortunate because that's all I know of what he did after he stopped acting was run-ins for narcotics. And mm-hmm. uh, at one point he was uh, arrested in connection with a bank robbery. And Good times. Yeah. I don't, I mean, who knows what else he had been doing and, and yeah. you never want to judge until you know, you know what everyone's full story is. But I don't know if he could have been their next big actor. Probably once their animated renaissance started happening with Little Mermaid and Aladdin and all that stuff, they probably just stopped pushing the live action things because the animated were starting to make them so much more money. I can kind of see where they think they're going to have this thing and then they realize, oh, we're making more money in animated and they just kind of let all of that go. Unfortunate for for a child actor because you know you you need to build trust and as you're still a kid even if you're a working actor you're still a kid and it's it's hard to take rejection at that age heartfelt moment there john <laughs> fuck you adam yeah well <laughs> you said we're not supposed to judge and i'm like fuck you this is a podcast of course <laughs> we're supposed to judge the hell all we do is judge we're judging this movie completely <laughs> all right fair enough so we get inside the ship finally. It's very clean, very silvery with some like symbols everywhere. I could swear I saw a flux capacitor symbol yes. on the floor yes, as we walked by. Yes, you did. Okay. Alex Silvestri did the music for Back to the Future, so maybe it's a nod to him for some reason or just time travel in general because this movie is doing some time travel and that's what they're kind of right. alluding to with that. But yeah, so I, I thought I saw that. 
and then we get a seat that kind of rises up from the floor. That was a cool little effect, practical effect. I like that one. Yeah, I, I like that effect. The ship starts talking to David. Uh, the ship ha- apparently has a mission. It's got to collect samples and bring things back to its home world. And here's where we find out that David's brain has been uploaded with star charts, that this ship needs his brain and his star charts because it damaged its computers in a crash, and he is the navigator, and he has to use his information to get back home. Now, I'm going to complain again. (laughs) It seems odd that a ship of this sophistication should have part of its, basically, its memory banks wiped because it crashed into some power lines, (laughs) yet the ship itself did not seem damaged. It's fine. And two, he says in this that humans only use 10% of the brain, so they filled the rest of it with star charts, which seems like such an odd, arbitrary thing to fill his head up with. Of all the things you're going to fill his head up with, why star charts? It is convenient that David now has. And you know what? I mean, they talk about it, but even because I remember watching it as a kid, the whole thing about him needing David for the star charts in his head never really clicked with me. It never really dawned on me that he just needed him for the star charts. Yeah, I obviously didn't remember it because I forgot everything. Yeah, but it didn't. It's still seemed strange that we're now in a world of cloud computing and couldn't that thing just it it couldn't properly back up its store, its (laughs) memory. Like, come on. I know it's 1986, but this is supposed to be, you know. (laughs) So we have a dumb dog. We have a dumb computer. We have dumb NASA. Uh, Everybody's dumb in this movie. Everyone except Jeff. Jeff is the smartest. Yes, he is. No, even Jeff is pretty dumb, and I'll and I'll explain later. Okay. So NASA finally notices that the silver ship is opened. They have no what's going on, and so the whole facility goes in lockdown mode, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. David is talking to the ship, which I do like. It keeps saying the word compliance. Like, that's, that's its little catchphrase. Compliance. 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 And I, I kind of liked that, I will say. And David wants to bust out. He, want, he tells the robot that it's time to go and we need to get out of here. Basically, they get out. David gives the thing a name because it's, I can't remember its full name, but it ends up nicknaming it to Max. Max is like the little, is like the, is the ship, but he's like this little, I don't know, robotic arm eyeball thing. And that ends up talking to David for, you know, most of it. That He's kind of the embodiment of the ship mm-hmm. and the alien. Yeah. And Max is kind of cute. He's kind of ignorant because he doesn't understand human culture. So you get some like little minor jokes of what is promise? I don't understand promise. Stuff like that. Like he's learning. It's it's kind of that teach a non-human how to be human thing. Right. But yeah, here's where we, where we also find out that the mission is to collect samples from different planets. And David kind of is the sample for mankind. Uh, so David and, and Max bust out. Yeah, we meet some other specimens, some alien specimens. One of them eats his hat, which is a funny little puppet moment. Uh, they're good little puppets, I thought, in those aliens. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah, funny scene. Eats the hat. Could have been his head. Uh, we see this huge eye that makes the sound that Xena makes when she's going into <laughs> battle. <laughs> did you did you, did you remember yes, that? What's in here? And then we meet the little pub Marin, which is just a cute little three-limbed bush baby, little like small monkey-ish kind of looking thing. Yeah, there's really no easy way to describe it, is there? So I keep going back to a bush baby because that's kind of like the animal. If that had sex with a seahorse, 
I think that's kind of what it would look like. Yeah, it does. It does kind of look like a, yeah, the like the lower half is like a, a seahorse or a shrimp. If it if it had like a hand at the end of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then it's got like these kind of almost like wing looking hands because it looks like he's like giant hands and small arms. You really just have to look at it yourself because there's really there's nothing to really compare it to. It's meant to just be cute. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, after Max scans David's brain, he kind of like uploads all of cultural insanity and weird idiosms and whatnot that kind of turns Max crazy. And he starts laughing and doing this other... He starts talking really weird. At the very beginning when we first meet Max, he talks more like a robotic alien. Then after he scans David's brain... And, he, and we get some of like that culture stuff. We, he gets really kind of weird and crazy. Weird and animated. But that's, that is where you can really tell it's Paul Rubin's voice. Wow! <laughs> this can't be happening. I think I've gotten some stuff out of your head that has nothing to do with navigating this ship. You sound just like a human. No! That dumb dog will never learn to catch a frisbee. You are an inferior species, you dumb dork. Butt face. Ghost bucket. <laughs> Before, like, I couldn't tell that it was him at all. Right. Actually, it wasn't even billed as Paul Rubin's. Yes, and that was on purpose. And that was actually Paul Rubin's suggestion. To hide the fact that he was doing the voice of the alien, he had them credit him as Paul Mall instead of Paul Rubin's so that no one would hopefully know that it was him until you hit that moment where you hear it and you go, oh, it's Pee-wee, because he does the Pee-wee laugh. Yeah, so this is the moment we get that, and it clicks, and it's like, okay, I know that voice, but... Moving along with the story, this movie mo- moves so slow. Yeah, it kind of does. It kind of does. It paced very poorly, and like not much is happening, it just in general. So yeah, he's getting the star charts, and yeah, he gets crazy. And David, cute little moment, David learns to fly. He can't really guide the ship before that. He's having trouble discussing or talking with Max, and he doesn't understand that Max just listens to him whatever he says yeah. earlier. And then so now he's like starting to fly himself. I guess it's cute. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a tossing him into the water to teach him how to swim because it basically just goes up and, yeah. and Max just kind of like shuts down. Says, okay, turkey, you fly it. And uh, then just shuts down and then you just see the ship falling and David kind of going, okay, okay. We then cut to a scene where Sarah Jessica Parker is talking to the family and she's letting them know the real truth. Because apparently NASA are lying bastards. Yes, NASA are lying stupid bastards. Then David just kind of like, flies around for 20 minutes like he's trying to get home and this this scene in particular just this set of scenes was just boring and useless to me where he first flies to tokyo which was atrocious green screen he flies there and it's obviously just all right we're in hollywood we need some japanese looking people in front of a green screen and it does not look good this is another instance of of what i'll call bullshit in the movie it appears to take absolutely no time for them to get from Cape Canaveral to Tokyo, but it seems to take them a lot longer to get from Tokyo back to Cape Canaveral. If he could have just said, go back to the coordinates where I got in the ship or something like that, boom, it's fucking done. He's done there. (laughs) And it could have, it would have been easy, but no, he's stupid and he takes forever. But also one thing with Tokyo, NASA apparently has the greatest tracking system of all time because (laughs) they can track this ship Everywhere it goes. I guess you could say maybe they put a tracker on it somewhere uh, at some point when they had it in their facility, but they know exactly where it is at all moments. Right. And that that makes no sense to me. Like, I don't get that. It did seem oddly specific. Like, it seemed like it should have taken them longer to figure out where it was. 
than they did. Yeah. But, you know, it's a movie. They got to seem like they can basically be able to do anything because they are this big government entity, essentially. So we're in the scenes where we're coming back from Tokyo, trying to get home. Nothing is really happening. He stops for directions at this car, which was playing this terrible 80s song. I don't know what song it was i don't even know what it was but here max kind of learns music it's just it's really used to just teach the robot how to be human more he's getting into music and then we stop at al's gator city that's how david knows he's in florida because of gators right nothing says florida like gators so david calls his parents big al is just shocked and staring at the ufo the i guess the best part of that is when David comes out of the ship and he asks to borrow money so he can call home, the Big Al guy was ends up talking to another family who stops for gas, and he says he just wanted to phone home. Yeah, which is a nice little homage to ET. So this this movie's got a little you know just other pop culture references in it, like the flux capacitor, like the phone home, like the grease song earlier. Little teases to things that had come before. Although, again, the family seemed dumb. The kids in that family seemed to be the only ones who understood. This is weird that these steps are just floating in the air, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the dad is just kind of like oblivious. So so he calls and he's talk to, talking to Jeff, who is, his, you know, the younger big brother. And Jeff says he's going to help out by lighting some fireworks to guide David home. But here's where I think Jeff is dumb because they're guiding David home where NASA is at. NASA immediately goes to his home to try and see if he went there. Jeff's like, hey, I want you to, you should come home and I'll light the way here. But like, they're sending him right to be captured again. It makes no sense. Doesn't Jeff even tell him? I think he mentioned something about that the NASA guys are there. Yeah, like why would they go there? Exactly. It made that part of it made no sense. And I and I realized maybe it's just that he's a you know he's a twelve year old. His panic. All he wants to do is go home. And he somehow thinks that if he gets home, they can't touch him. He'll be safe. So David gets there eventually, and instead of stepping out of the ship, he wants to stay with Max, and he wants to try whatever he can to go back in time. Because one thing we didn't mention was Max said he normally takes his subjects or his samples back in time because the ship can go back in time because i guess it has a flux capacitor because science yeah but he said that david's body is too frail and he probably he might not survive it seems weird because those other animals also seemed a little (laughs) frail yes yeah they looked uh just as weak But David makes his choice and he decides he's going to take the risk to go back to 1978 to regain his life. And basically, boom, it worked. David wakes up in 1978. And us as an audience were like, wait, is this all just a dream? It could have just been a dream. Maybe he hit his head and he was just dreaming that. Mm Mm-hmm. But he gets back to his family, and they're going out onto the boat. And the one thing that proves it wasn't a dream is the little Pubmarin bush baby shrimp whatever <laughs> thing shrimp is hiding in his bag and because David took it with him. Well, that brings up another thing, because I wondered about this. Because he almost seems... I know he seems surprised that it stuck its head out, but it almost seems like he's surprised that it's there. Like, maybe it stowed away with him, and not that he brought it with him. Yeah, that's possible. But it's the proving element that it wasn't all just a dream. It wasn't all fake. It was a real thing that David went through. So, eh. That's the end of the movie. I'm just going to say, I didn't think this movie was special. As a kid, I loved Max, and I remember him being so hilarious. But watching it now, like I just didn't think he was funny. Like <laughs> I did not care for that at all. 
The music was not very good. It was super 80s, but I love I love 80s music. And it was just kind of there. It was a very blah movie in my opinion. And also there were no resolutions. Nothing happened in the movie. NASA didn't get their comeuppance. David didn't get the girl. They had that whole setup early on of, oh, David likes this girl. So, you know, maybe he'll end up talking to her. Nothing came from it. Basically, we end up going right back to where we started with the only thing changing is... David now likes his brother. That's it. That's the only difference. Yeah. I, having watched this movie a couple times as an adult, it, in general, does not hold up. It seems too dated. The The jokes seem too dated. There are parts of it I still enjoy, most of them involving Paul Rubin's character, Max, because mm-hmm. he's the he seems like the only character who doesn't really whine. There were moments, some things that were still enjoyable, but... Yeah, overall. Eh. It's definitely one of those movies that if you di- if you watched it now and had never seen it, there's no, I don't think there's any way anyone would really like it. Nope. My wife watched it and yeah, she hated it. As you mentioned, the pacing is really slow. Not much really happens. I've en- I enjoyed watching it with my family and maybe that was what made me enjoy it a little bit as an adult was kind of being able to share it. And there were parts that I know that my kids did enjoy. I know that the first time we watched it, they weren't particularly interested in it. And even I watched it yesterday and they were in the room as I watched it. My daughter did kind of watch it a little bit with me. Son was not interested at all. Yeah, my, my official word is uh, if, if you watch this movie as a kid, let it stay in nostalgia. You don't need to rewatch this one. It's not as good as like a never ending story that you rewatched and you got more out of it as an adult. This one, just let it let it slide. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Let it stay. And it, it, there's going to be some of these that we cover that I know that once we rewatch them, we realize, yeah, it just doesn't have the same impact as an adult as it did as a kid. And this is definitely one of those movies. Womp womp. <laughs> All right, so now let's get started with The Reading Rainbow, Let Our Brains Soar. It started in 1983 and went all the way to 2006. It then did start up a mobile app. It had a big old Kickstarter and kind of rejuvenated at one point with LeVar Burton as well. The show won 26 Emmys in its lifetime, and it is basically a show where... LeVar Burton kind of teaches kids about the fun of reading. It was on PBS, so it was kind of very low budget, but very educational based. And it starts off with like another classic song, you know, just another just great song that I remember from my childhood. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. I think everyone remembers this, and and I have a couple of stories. So when the app was, it had just come out, the Reading Rainbow app. So this was a few years ago. Since I live in Las Vegas, we have a very big Star Trek convention every year. It's the biggest one. I think it's the biggest one in the world. It's it's sort of the main Star Trek convention. And one year, uh, when my son, who's now seven, I think he was probably three at the time. So this was about four or five years ago, right when the app had come out. Um, I was in line to get uh, an autograph from Star Trek The Next Generation, including LeVar Burton. And when we got to LeVar Burton, you know, they have their, they're used, you know, they've been doing this for a long time, these conventions, and they know how to kind of make idle idle chit chat with the people 
people who come through and they they know that the people who are coming through have these connections with them because they've watched them in their living rooms for so long so they know how to kind of engage and but they know at the same time they're trying to move because there's so many people trying to get in line for this stuff and so we get up to LeVar Burton, and I mentioned to him that my son loves the app because I had recently downloaded it, and we'd re- we'd gone through some of the free books. He stops the line, pulls out his iPad, starts to show my son and I the finer points of the app and how it works because <laughs> he knew that my son is the audience. He knew that I was the gateway because mm-hmm. I was obviously a reading Rainbow fan, but he, my son was who he was trying to reach because he's trying to get kids to read more. And so he was so nice. He's basically stopped the line to show me you know, how to work the app better for my son. And I didn't even really ask about it. He just kind of did it. And I thought it was amazing. And a- another really quick story and this is about the theme song he did a talk one year i don't even know if it was the same year he did a talk at the same convention the same star trek convention and i think it was him and brent spiner who played data on the movie and brent spiner is a funny guy i you almost can't take anything he says even in real life seriously because he's he kind of jokes about everything. But at some point, he started talking about reading Rainbow, and Brent Spiner started singing the song, and the entire audience sang it all the way through. Everyone knows that song. It's been that show was on for so long that it's it's anyone who is any sort of an adult was probably touched by that show in some way. Yeah. Speaking kind of about LeVar Burton and your story of him just stopping the the line to to show your son the app and whatnot, to me that ties in with his genuineness that comes across in the show as well. Like, LeVar just seems like such a nice, genuine guy. He's not a judgy kind of person. He is really the Mr. Rogers of our generation. There's Mr. Rogers for, like, the slightly older people, and for me, LeVar Burton is that kind of guy and that character to where we invited him into our homes and he's just someone that I would immediately trust. This is LeVar's legacy. Even though he was great in Star Trek Next Generation and other stuff as well, this is what he is going to be remembered for and we have so much love and passion for what he helped us do and learn with reading rainbow that he's the kind of guy that i could just be like man i could just invite you into my home and you're gonna be just a perfect house guest and you're just a a fantastic guy you can just it seeps through the tv with that i would agree with all of that statement i think he is definitely i like the analogy of he's kind of our generation's mr rogers he is what was important about educational television that show is what educational television should be Mm -hmm. yeah it's getting these kids kids to want to read stories. Reading Rainbow almost had an approach where it was almost sort of a reading version of Bill Nye, if you will. He would have some activity that he was doing that he would start with, Mm -hmm. and everything about it would lead to whatever books that he was talking, or at least the main book that he was talking about. Um, I watched a couple of episodes. The one that sticks in my mind the most is he was at a bowling alley. Oh, yeah, I saw that one, too. You know, he's bowling and he talks about the, the the game itself, but then you kind of, he shows you what's really happening behind the scenes and how the balls are made. So it's kind of like reading, it's reading and then it's a little bit of science and then it's a little bit of sort of how it's made type thing. And it was always very interesting what he did. And there's actually, there are episodes that have stuck in my mind since I was a kid. There's one where he goes spelunking, you know, cave diving with with a couple of people. And I've always remembered that episode. Oh yeah, um, I do remember. That, that one's stuck in my brain as well. Like, I didn't rewatch that one recently, but that is one that just because you bring it up, it's like, oh, yeah, the cave episode. Hell, yeah. yeah. And, you know, his personality, he just... 
man, you just want to like him. Yes. You just want to like him. There is nothing about him that you don't like. And and yes, he is putting a little bit of a, a of a show on it. But having seen the, the man in person a few times and, and speak, he is that genuinely likable. He knows what he represents. He just seems like he's such a great guy. Like you want to know him. You want him to be your friend. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, as you kind of put it, the the show has little LeVar set up like the bowling thing, you know, there's just there's doing some activity or something's happening and then it ties into the book and then you get the book which is usually read by a celebrity. So some of the episodes I watched, Peter Falk was one of them. I actually watched one of them where Bill Cosby was reading uh, and and rewatching that in today's eyes, it's like I don't really want Bill Cosby to read my kids anything. Bill Cosby is such a tough thing to talk about because... Yeah, because he was great in the time. For what he did in his professional life, he did great things. Yeah. He put together a great sitcom show. He was a great comedian. He was a great ambassador for the things that he believed in. And, you know, as it turns out, a lot of people have dark sides, and he had one, and it was unfortunate. Terrible. Yeah, it was unfortunate Yes, that that's what it was, because it's sort of like, well, if Cosby's going to fall from grace, what is that going to do for the rest of us? Are you going to tell me that, like, LeVar Burton's running meth labs or some shit? I will cut you, John. (laughs) (laughs) No. I have no doubt in my mind that uh, LeVar Burton is not running meth labs. Okay, because I want him to stay genuine in my head. So, how to transition back to (laughs) the Reading Rainbow. Okay, I'm just going to say, anyway, one thing I do want to bring up with the Reading Rainbow is this show was so progressive and positive like the lyrics from the song are so positive it just it makes you happy it makes you want to be a good person and feel positive and lavar is so positive and progressive and it's you're supposed to you know be very open and like everybody and it's the kind of show that i feel if you could have just gone back in time and like shown racist people this show when they were kids no one would ever be racist no one would ever (laughs) be bad they would just be positive perfect little people (laughs) Uh, in perfect world right yeah in a perfect world but yeah the show is geared to kids but re-watching it I still liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I didn't care for really the readings of the books like that. I'm older than that. But the parts with LeVar or where you're kind of learning things behind the scenes, I really enjoyed that. And it's not a show that I think I would go out of my way to rewatch nowadays. But obviously it is a show I will show to either my kids if I have them that I'll show to any kids I'm babysitting or whatnot. And if it's on... I will sit and watch it. Yes. Like, I really did enjoy rewatching this show. I did, too. And I, I watched a couple episodes, and I, I got my, my kids to, to watch with me. And they actually kind of, you know, apropos to what you said, they did seem a little bit more interested when the, you know, the kids were reading the books or the books were being shown. Mm-hmm. They were paying attention to that more than when LeVar was talking. But... For me, it was Le- it was Lavar. I, I rewatching this show was me watching Lavar. Yeah. It was not watching it for the books. No, not at all. But it it speaks volumes about the show that mm-hmm. I'm sitting with my kids watching a show. We're watching it for different reasons, but still getting something out of it, which means he knew his audience. He knew that it was kids watching, but it was also parents watching with the kids. That's a good way to put it is LeVar also, he doesn't talk down to the kids in the show at all. Like, you're not talking like, oh, I have to talk stupid talk so these kids understand me. Like, it was very one-on-one level where you felt very accepting, and it was for everybody. And yeah, you got these great moments where... 
this you see the science behind something and that the kids may not understand or really care and they just want to see the fun pictures and re- hear the book being read in funny voices but as an adult like i loved that science behind the other stuff and just the way it was presented was good for everybody it was presented to the kids in a way that they saw as accepting and equal and then also it was presented in a manner that adults can pick it up and be like oh wow, I didn't know that about bowling or I didn't know that about dominoes, like that kind of thing. Right. Such a friendly, great little show. Like it has some cheesy moments. There's There are bad puns. There are silliness, but it's so acceptable. It's, it's part of the flair and the fun of the show. Yeah. And, you know, if you go back and watch older episodes, yes, you know, the fashion is different. The technology is different. Yeah. And But you can still pick up stuff. And it's a show that I wish was still on. Mm-hmm. And I realize for as much as we associate uh, LaFarge, Burton with the show. Uh, he doesn't technically own the show. It's someone else who owns the show. Yeah. Uh, WNED, which is a station, actually is has actually sued LeVar Burton yes. because of his podcast. Uh, he uses the phrase, but you don't have to take my word for it, which he used in every single episode of Reading Rainbow. Um, but I do want to plug LeVar Burton's podcast, which is called LeVar Burton Reads. Uh, yeah, he's getting sued by the station because they own Reading Rainbow. But like to me, I'm sorry. That's LeVar's phrase. That's too bad. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like such a petty thing. And I, I hope they realize that they must not care that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they own I it, whether or not they own the phrase, I guess is, that's up for the lawyers to, de- to determine. That's that's way above my pay grade. But I really hope they realize that it makes them seem incredibly petty. Yes, it goes against the entire feel and just reason behind the Reading Rainbow, it feels, it, it seems. And it's, yeah, so I hope that gets solved. Yeah, I hope that gets resolved. And I, I mean, I hope they just drop it mm-hmm. because they realize how incredibly stupid it makes them look. And we should probably change the subject before I get actually angry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Have you <laughs> listened yeah. to his podcast? I haven't. I haven't either. And I, I'm going to remedy that very quickly because I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of it, um, obviously, because we're making one. Yeah, but in all... This was a great show. I do like they had at the end of each episode, they have kids recommending other books for kids. And they have like that that sound that goes in between each one. Like I completely <laughs> forgot about that. But rewatching it, it was just like, oh, that's cute. I remember that now. But yeah, like a lot of nostalgic love for Reading Rainbow. But I'm glad to see that it really holds up and I can take more out of it nowadays. Yeah, it would be nice if it came back because I think there's so much that that LeVar could do with it now mm-hmm. with the technology that's available to him. But I'm uh, I'm happy to see where he's gone with the app that they had and the you know the school programs that is associated with. You couldn't pay me enough to say something bad about LeVar Burton and the, you know, the work that he's done with education, especially because I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't really teach reading per se. I'm a, I'm a music teacher. But I see these kids every day and I see, you know, even now the struggles that kids have with reading, you know, you, you might look around you and say, well, it doesn't seem like anyone's really having problems reading. It's happening. I saw it even when I taught at the high school level kids having problems reading and it's it's something that we as a country definitely need to address and i think lavar had the right idea or the showrunners whoever created the show had the right idea and you can definitely go back and rewatch this with your kids or just go back and rewatch it as an adult and you'll get something out of it maybe you should uh send a couple dvds over to the high school for some of those dumbo kids who can't read <laughs> that's a horrible thing to say <laughs>
So now we're going to do our casting portion of the show. Uh, and this time we decided to go with Teen Titans. I almost said Teen Titans Go because my kids like watching that show. <laughs> but referring mostly to Teen Titans now, I know that when it started, Teen Titans was not necessarily most of, if not any of the members that we associate with it now. But because we associate these five characters with it now, I thought it was best that we just kind of focus on casting them because if they were going to make a live action Teen Titans movie, these are probably the characters they would use because it's most associated with them. Except they wouldn't use Cyborg. No. Well, I don't know. I disagree. Okay. I mean, he's he's such a big part of Teen Titans, but they are already getting him into the Justice League right now that I don't think that they would confuse everybody by having a different version in a Teen Titans movie. Well, I guess so, but it bothers me that studio executives generally think that we as an audience are stupid and cannot make a disconnect. But for the sake of this casting, we are going to sort of recast Cyborg because uh, essentially they're everyone as a teenager. And in some cases, it's, it's pretty easy because they're sort of the sidekicks of mm-hmm. other people. So... I am mostly familiar with Teen Titans from the TV shows. I unfortunately was, I've never been a huge DC fan. I'd never really followed their comics as much. I did a little bit with Batman when I was younger, Mm -hmm. but mostly I've been a Marvel guy. So I mostly associate them with the better TV show that was on in, I believe, like the mid 2000s. Adam, did you have much interaction with Teen Titans? No, I honestly didn't even really watch the show at all. So, I mean, I've seen it a couple times maybe but i never read the comics yeah i'm similar to you in that i never really read dc other than i own a lot of batman trade paperbacks uh and just graphic novels because Batman's stories are some of the best stories in all of comics yeah but in dc in general it's not really my thing so i never really knew teen titans other than watching the cartoon maybe once maybe twice at most yeah but even then it, i was a little too old for the cartoon at the time as were you but like still is it that's my only real familiarity with them is that cartoon as well right so you know in the age of superhero movies the idea of a teen titans movie is not unreasonable i'm sure it's very reasonable i'm sure it's probably in the works if it isn't in the works it's definitely been discussed mm-hmm. so We're going to talk about if we were in charge, if we were the casting directors of the Teen Titans movie, who would we want to see in these parts? And we'll focus on just the main five, Robin, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven. For me, it was a little tough because I'm not as familiar with a lot of the young actors. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized that I was more familiar with young actors when I was a kid who are now much older so i remember them from their teenage years you know like not that i would cast them in this movie but like a fred savage who i associate with being young mm-hmm. but yet is this if, if he's not the same age as me he's a little bit older yeah. so that just wouldn't work so let's just jump right into it teen titans yeah i'll say i tried to stick to people who which i'm sure you did as well who people who could look he could either play teen uh, they didn't have to be teenagers i pretty much stayed to people who are 25 years or younger so that way they could they could skip you to teen if they needed to. I agree. Actually, I mo- I tried to stay with people who were basically 20 or younger. Um, and in in one case, in one case, I didn't end up going with someone who was 25 but did look young. See, I mean, if if Marvel can cast Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man when he's like 57, I think, when he got hired, <laughs> then I can put in a 25-year-old. Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> so let's just start off with the face of Teen Titans. And it's the character that probably is what hooks you in because it's the most recognizable. It's going to be your gateway character, if you will, into this team. And that's Robin of, you know, Batman and Robin fame. Mm-hmm. And there have been iterations of Robin, you know, famously Burt Ward, which we almost always associate Burt Ward with Robin more than anything else. Do you know which Robin it was? Because it's not Dick. Was it Dick Grayson or was it Tim Drake? I thought it was Tim Drake just as the... Uh, as you know, because there's been many versions of Robin in the comics. I, I just couldn't remember if it was Tim Drake because Dick Grayson goes on to be Nightwing. Right. And Tim Drake becomes the Robin for the Teen Titans. Uh, is Do you know off the top of your head? I don't. And I'll be okay. honest with you, and I, I can guarantee you the audience going to feel this way. Nobody cares. <laughs> Okay. All right. They just see Robin. Yeah, that's fine. They just see Robin as as what he is. And if we get any comments on this episode, it's going to be about my indifference to who is playing Robin or who, you know, which, you know, who is Robin, which character is Robin or whatever. Yeah. I've never cared. Okay. I've never cared about all of that because I just see Robin as a kid. I just see Nightwing as an adult. I don't put the two together. I realize it's ridiculous of me because I'm probably a lot more scrutinous in my Marvel canon than I am in my DC canon. Mm-hmm. But I've just, I've just never cared. Okay, moving on. So let's start off with, you know, who who our big star is probably going to be, and that's Robin. And I'd like to hear your pick first, Adam. Okay. Like I said, I was willing to skew a little bit older uh, just to try and get who I thought was a good pick. And I went with Josh Hutcherson, who is 25 years old, and he's probably most famous for playing PETA in The Hunger Games. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's kind of, I think he's got that look. He's got some action stuff with The Hunger Games. Um, He is a little bit older, but... Not that bad. I think he can skew teen and look teen pretty easily. That's fair. For my pick, I decided to kind of pilfer Marvel's cast because this kid is an amazing actor. Robin is supposed to be an acrobat, and this kid can do this stuff. He can do stunt work. I know right now we're associating with him with Spider-Man, but I went with Tom Holland. Oh, yeah, I thought of him as well, but... That's tough. I know, but you know, it's 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 tough to be the actors that walks between two worlds, as Kevin Smith likes to call it. Yeah, I specifically didn't choose him because he is Spider-Man right now. You know, and I try, I tried, I tried to find another actor that I thought would would work in this role, but in in my head, that type of character is Tom Holland. Okay, and so that was my pick for Robin, and yeah, they can darken up his hair a bit because you know Robin typically has black hair, and Tom Holland's hair is a little bit a little bit lighter, lighter brown. Mm-hmm. But I think he just would be a good choice. Okay. Not going to disagree with that. All right. Let's jump to probably one of the most beloved characters in Teen Titans because of just kind of how she is. Emo? Yes. We're going to go with Raven. <laughs> I knew you were going to talk about because, yeah, she's, she's probably like the second favorite behind Robin. She's got a really cool look to her. Yes. And is one of the most, because I've been to several, you know, Comic-Cons now, uh, I always see a raven Mm. always Mm -hmm. i never i hardly ever see anyone else maybe a robin never a cyborg or a beast boy or a star for but i always see a raven um i went back and forth on a couple people but i decided i wanted to make a 
definite pick and it might seem a little unconventional because she's kind of known for not necessarily known for being animated she's definitely a good actress um, and i think she could pull off the emo thing i don't know if i've ever really seen her in an emo type role but i went with chloe grace moretz oh so that's, that is someone who i put on my list as well for that role as raven i i think she i just think she could sell it yeah i mean she played a vampire in the let the right one in remake okay so i think she could probably be stoic yeah and she was the other name that i put but she wasn't ultimately who i went with all right and who'd you go with so so I went with Haley Steinfeld, who is probably most famous for playing the young girl in True Grit. Oh. The remake with Jeff Bridges, True Grit. She's, get, you know, she's very, can be stoic. She is a very, very good actress. She's been in Pitch Perfect 2 and Ender's Game as well. But I think she is a strong actress. She has the look. And so I, that's who I chose. But yeah, Chloe, I thought was uh, another good choice. They're both around the same age. I think one, Haley's 20 and Chloe's 21. So they definitely have like the teen look. But Haley... I think is someone who uh, who could be a little bit more emo um, okay. than Chloe. Okay, yeah. that's fair. All right, uh, now let's jump to probably the one with the most fantastical power, I think, um, mm. is Beast Boy. I had a little bit of a tough time with this one. Yeah, to me, Beast Boy, you gotta have, like, that lean look. To me, to me, he looks, I, me, just because I'm a Marvel fan, he looks like a, a ripoff of Nightcrawler, but he's green and has no tail. Right, yeah. That's that's exactly what he looks like to me. So I want someone who's kind of, like, kind of lean, who can kind of pull that off. Also kind of, I always just kind of had, like, a roundish face Maybe I'm just thinking too much of the cartoon from it. Right. Anyway, uh, I went with a kid named Asa Butterfield, who he's around 20 years old, but he is best known as Hugo from the movie Hugo. He was also Ender in Ender's Game. So he's done some kind of like big sci-fi action stuff. But I think I think he could probably pull it off. He's done he's done some big, big movies before. So I think yes. it would make sense. Adam, I have one name listed behind beside Beast Boy. Do you want to know what that name is? Asa Butterfield. He's a Butterfield. All right. <laughs> so we're definitely on the same wavelength there. He's he's got he he has a look of he could be a Beast Boy. I didn't see Ender's Game, but it seemed like he definitely could kind of he could probably play the action. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he could be trained well enough. He was his acting was great in Hugo. <laughs> yeah. For you know for such a young kid at that time, I know that was this was six five or six years ago that that we had uh, Hugo. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he was the only one I could think of putting in that role. Yeah. That was about perfect. All right. <laughs> uh, another one that I had a little bit of a tough time, but I, ultimately I think I like my choice, uh, was Starfire, the other female in the group. Kind of bubbly, almost naive. Yeah. She is in the cartoons. From what I've, from what I've, I looked into a little bit of her backstory and she's not nearly that naive in the actual comics. She's actually got much more of a darker history and things like that. But at least from the, what we're familiar with, she is kind of a bit of a, uh, a bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I wasn't going to go that far, but all right. I'll go ahead and say I went with someone who I think has come into her own as an actor. She has a very famous sister who is a very good actress. I don't know. I don't want to say has fallen off the, the grid a little bit, but it, it does seem in the last few years we haven't seen her in as much stuff since she's been older. I'm talking about the sister anyway. But I went with Elle Fanning, okay. who is a sister of Dakota Fanning, younger sister of Dakota Fanning. Mm -hmm. um, Elle Fanning has uh, had a couple of big roles. Yeah, Super 8. Yep. And uh, even recently has been in a couple of big projects with big, good actors. And, you know, she's got the look of it. I think she would fit well there. Yeah, that's a good call. I actually specifically went to IMDb and checked on Super 8 because I really enjoyed that movie. And I'm like, I haven't seen these kids in anything. And I thought that they would be good fits for this. But ultimately, I didn't go with any of them. But uh, <laughs> I do I do like your call on Elle Fanning. All right. 
I thought about a couple different people. I thought possibly Bella Thorne, maybe just because she has that red hair already Mm -hmm. as an actress. I thought of Zendaya, who plays Michelle in Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. She's a good actress, but that's not who I went with. I went with uh, an actress named Willow Shields. Uh, She's 17 years old. She played Primrose in Hunger Games. So I kind of went back to Hunger Games. Also, she's been in some big stuff, big action-y kind of things, but I think she could have the look. And yeah, so I, I thought I thought Willow Shields might be a good call, but I could totally see Elle fanning in it as well, either or. All right. And now the one that is going to be just uh, controversial on whether or not they would actually use it. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought about just putting, and I'm embarrassed because I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, the person who is playing Cyborg now come for the upcoming Justice League movie. In my head, I'm thinking they have the technology, and the character itself is a lot of motion capture. They could possibly just use the same actor and make him look a lot younger. But in the interest of trying to recast it, I did go with someone else. Um, and do you want to go first, or would you like me to go first? No, I'll go. I'll go first. Okay. I went with an actor who is actually best known from the TBS show House of Pain, Tyler Perry's House of Pain. His name is Laramie Doc Shaw. But I want to say what I like about him. He was in Planet of the Apes and he played a character named Ash. And I saw some of the behind the scenes stuff where he's, I mean, he is in like the whole motion capture suit and he understands that world already. And he did some really good work, uh, you know, as as an ape. And so I thought being in this role of Cyborg, that would be heavy CGI, heavy motion capture would be someone who understands that a little bit better. And that's someone who's had that role. And so, yeah, Laramie Doc Shaw. Adam, anyone who doesn't know us might think we're twins <laughs> because we seem to have that we're having this connection with this because I also went with Laramie Darkshaw. I am shocked. Specifically wow. because of his work um, as Ash on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I thought I was going to shock you with that one. I was like, wow, John thinks I'm going to go real deep because I've got a good deep cut here with Laramie Darkshaw. But no, <laughs> you, you had it too. I went with the same one. And may, you know what? Maybe these are just obvious characteristics that we would like with this and and you know like i said people might think we're not twins we're we have like five years between yeah. us <laughs> there is no there is no connection there well if, if for every one of our casting so far we've had at least one person where we've thought the exact same yes. uh, actor should be that that so yes th- and now we have two in this one with asa butterfield and larry Doc yes. Shaw, which is kind and, of funny and even then you had considered chloe grace grace Moretz. oh yeah i did yes well. i did she was on my list so obviously we have a very very similar taste in, in movies and actors and and the, yeah. you know the way we think we should go no. so yes i also went with uh, laramie doc shaw and i was all prepared to give backstory on him and you did it for me which made my job so much easier uh, which was great obviously we shared a lot of, of similar ones but i like it I really have no, and this might be the first time, not to say I disagree with you all the time, but this is probably the first time where I don't disagree with your choices at all. Yeah, and yours as well. Any of them. And think I would go see either one. Either cast, anyone in any part, I would go see that movie. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'd like to see it. I'd like to see that movie happen. (laughs) As I said in the very first episode, I cannot get enough of superhero movies. Yeah. Uh, I need more of them. I need all the superhero movies, everyone. I want everyone's catalog made into a movie. I don't I just don't care mm-hmm. if anyone's sick of it. I want to see it. So, good actually makes me makes me feel really good about my choices for that. And, yeah, uh, I agree. I think you made great choices, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adam. 
if you have your own ideas as to who you'd like to see in a role like this, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at BlastPastCast. You can search that same handle on Facebook and find us, the Blast From Our Past podcast. And we'd love to hear from you. Or if you just want to email us, you can send an email to BlastFromOurPast at gmail.com. If you have any movies from your nostalgic days that you really want us to cover and rewatch and talk about, please send it in and uh, we'll try and get to that. Please join us next time where we review the Disney movie musical The Newsies and the Disney animated series Gargoyles, as well as recast Gargoyles. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time.